Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable, acceptable to you, my God, my rock. Amen. One of my favorite books is What's So Amazing About Grace by Phil Yancey. His stories reveal grace moments, some sad, some shocking, of horrible damage done when grace is absent in our human interactions. In one of its chapters, Yancey reveals how the injury done by one person and the refusal of the injured party to give grace and forgiveness resulted in passing on the poison of ungrace that spanned a century. The daughter in this story was so embittered by past hurts that for her, it was unreasonable to expect her to forgive the terrible things her father did to her just because he apologized many years later, and totally unfair to ask a mother to overlook the many offenses her teenage son committed. And down through the generations, it continued. In world history, Yancey continues, similar accounts span many centuries with far worse consequences. If you ask a bomb-throwing teenager in Northern Ireland or a machete-welding soldier in Rwanda, or a sniper in the former Yugoslavia, why they are killing? They may not even know. Ireland seeking revenge for atrocities Oliver Cromwell committed in the 17th century. Rwanda and Burundi are carrying on tribal feuds that extend long past anyone's memory. In today's world, the poison of own grace persists, playing like the background static of life for families, nations, and institutions. Our gospel account today is another instance of generational, ongoing discord between peoples. For the Samaritans and the Jewish nation, the conflict between them had been going on for centuries long before Jesus was even born. As with most national conflicts, the impact of that first clash became deeply rooted. In order to take in the rich significance of this conversation that we began to hear, and the message Jesus conveys to us today, we must go back over 600 years before Jesus was born. The northern kingdom had been conquered by the Assyrians. Their Assyrian conquerors had a policy of moving the populations of captured cities, with the result that the Israelites were scattered in various parts of the empire, and other captives were brought to the region around Samaria. Conniving and ruthless, the, Samar the Assyrians desired to destroy any national identity but their own. By burning people, for bringing people in from other nations, which they had conquered, they could keep these areas confused and weak. Judea would be conquered later by King Nebuchadnezzar, 
Although they were settled in Egypt, the exiles in Babylon were the ones who maintained the historic faith and provided the basis for the return to Jerusalem. The animosity between the Samaritans and the Jewish remnant of Ezra and Nehemiah began during the return of Jerusalem to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. The Samaritans, those who were inhabitants of Samaria, sought to share in that rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, but they were firmly re rebuffed. Racial purity was Ezra's reason for the refusal. Only those who were pure Hebrew heritage were sanctioned to build the temple. However, even some of the Jewish priests and Levites, Levites had intermarried, which caused Ezra to call for the priests and the Levites to send their wives of foreign origin away and purify themselves. To say the least, this rejection of the Samaritans, as well as the call to send their families away, created deep resentment in the hearts of many. The rift between the people, politically and religiously, was made permanent. The people of Samaritan chose to only follow the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, with changes made of some of the important details. One such change pertained to the true place of worship. According to the Samaritans, Mount Gerizim was God's chosen mountain to worship on rather than Jerusalem. And so the divisiveness, the verbal and physical attacks continued through the centuries. So much so that the Jews would skirt around Samaria rather than travel the shorter route on the land that they considered unsafe in addition to being unclean. With this background in mind, I have to say I have always been intrigued by verse 4 in chapter 4 of John. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Had to. Why was he drawn, pulled, compelled to an area that the Jews normally would avoid at all costs? What or who was he drawn to and for what reason? John's narrative tells us that as Jesus traveled to Galilee, he stopped at Jacob's well near the town of Sychar in Samaria. As some of you might know, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's a story chucked full of the things of everyday life, for even for us today. There's conflict of culture, gender, politics, and religion. But there is also an unspoken element implied, yet demonstrated by Jesus. An element that would bring healing, acceptance, and mercy. The presence of grace. Some of us may say, grace? Grace doesn't come until after Jesus dies on the cross. However, grace, the unmerited, unearned, free gift of God actually begins in Genesis and runs through Revelation. Since the fall in the Garden of Eden, God has never stopped seeking us, 
He pursues us. He knocks on the door of our heart, waiting for us to respond. Grace is so amazing. And it's multifaceted. In fact, if we watch for grace in this encounter, we will experience the progression of its power. John Wesley named those facets. He said there was provenient grace, justifying grace, means of grace, obstacles to grace, and sanctifying grace. But today I want to focus on just two of them. So let me back up once again to verse 4. Why does he say he had to go through Samaria? Now we can look at verse 1 and 2, and it might give us a hint. Could it be that the Pharisees were paying too much attention to how many people John and Jesus were baptizing, as if it were a competition? Or was it something else? Jesus had a mission, but it wasn't a mission of competing with John for disciples. I don't think he was leaving town to get away from the Pharisees and their watching eyes. I believe he had to go to Samaria because of God's prevenient grace. It's the grace that comes before any human response to God. Let me say that again. It is grace that comes before any human response to God. And so he had to go stopped at Jacob's well, and waited. About that time, a Samaritan woman was heading toward Jacob's well with a heart that was hurting, possibly emotionally and spiritually, maybe even physically. A heart that may have been crying of loneliness, rejection, and shame. A soul thirsty for relief. Now, we don't actually know her feelings, Yet we can surmise, after hearing her exchange with Jesus, that life was not going very well for her. Did she feel that she was a lost cause and beyond repair? The customs and traditions of her time gave her no hope that her life would get any better. She wasn't looking for a Messiah or a Savior. She was simply doing a daily chore to survive the need for water. The beautiful thing about provenient grace is that she wasn't looking for a savior, but he was looking for her. She had no inkling that God was waiting for her at the well and that her life was about to be transformed. This meeting between Jesus and the woman from Samaria is one encounter bursting with the good news of the gospel. The bonus for her is that it was delivered by the Lord himself. Today in 2020, we receive grace through the way or means of Holy Communion and the Word. She was blessed with the Word being right in front of her, offering her the free gift of God, living water that cleanses sins and leads to eternal life. She's offered salvation, grace unearned, Grace undeserved, grace offered, and she wasn't even seeking it. Provenient grace while we were yet sinners. It was freely given if she simply asked for it. 
Last week, Brian shared in his sermon that we must be humble enough to ask his help. He, Jesus, is the means of grace, or simply said, the way by which God's grace is extended and received by her and now us today. If you notice when we read farther down that Jesus never condemned her. He simply acknowledged the truth of her past and her present. But how did he know? How did he know everything about her? There was something deeper here, but she wasn't quite sure. At first it seemed the next step was to change the subject. But maybe she desired to know the truth of the conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews. Maybe she was seeking an answer to the age-old question, where are we truly to worship God, on this mountain or in Jerusalem? Both groups were waiting for the Messiah to give them the right answers. And here he was, the Messiah, grace personified, right in front of her. He was her means of grace, the way and the light for her path, helping her to break free from the chains of hopelessness, rejection, and shame. Jesus, grace personified, the light dawning in her heart with acceptance, love, and healing. Jesus, grace personified in truth, Jesus and later the Holy Spirit opened her understanding further that though she had sinned and made wrong choices, God forgave her through his free gift of grace. Jesus' grace personified the living water, living water for the spiritual thirsty. At the moment of the disciples' return from town, she may not have totally understood that all that had transpired but the hope in her soul sent her running to tell those who had shamed and hurt her that the Messiah was here. Did you catch that? She went running to tell those who had made her life miserable. And she gave them grace. Grace and forgiveness inviting them to also come and meet Jesus. In Jesus' eyes, she was not approached as if she was the enemy. Jesus conveyed in this divine engagement that she was equally loved by God and that he desired that she be saved. And then he continued in the spirit of grace by staying two days with the Samaritans. Jesus, God in person, established that every person who believes in him receives the free gift of grace and eternal life. So what would Jesus expect from us today? He expects us to see all people as Jesus saw the Samaritans, people of sacred worth. So how do we apply this encounter to our own lives? Jesus has taught and demonstrated many times what God requires of us, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. That means we need to break the chain of ungrace, break the chain of hate, 
Break the chain of unacceptance and unjust actions. Break the chains of oppression and exploitation. It's a tall order. However, the disciples of Jesus can be the conduit for change in this nation and throughout the world through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. The issues of race and treatment toward people of color are deeply rooted. It's going to take a lot of effort and a lot of time. It necessitates listening and more listening to those who have been affected by injustice, to understand the meaning of our words and how they have unknowingly harmed another. Pastor Pat has encouraged us to form groups to listen and talk and hopefully find a path to understanding and healing between all people of this nation. Let's break that chain. Be a part of stopping the deep-rooted generational curse of ungrace and unforgiveness toward others. Following Jesus' example with the Samaritans, let's be those who bring hope and grace to each person. Jesus commissions all of us to go and make disciples of all nations. I've never heard anyone say they did not want to be treated justly, to receive mercy, or to know they are not a lost cause. Have you? I had a dear friend, Purvis Kennedy. He was an elder member of the Grace AME Zion Church in South Bend. For those who don't know what AME is, it means African Methodist Episcopal. So it's one of our brother churches, sister churches. For years on Thursdays, he and a group from their church would meet for Bible study. They, one day, um, Pastor Sharkob and I stopped in to give them a newsletter. And they invited us to come and have Bible study with them. But later I was told they didn't really expect us to return. But to their surprise, we did. For over eight years, I was privileged to meet with their group, and they mentored me, and they encouraged me as we dug into scripture and shared lives, our life stories. It was an eye-opener for me of the cruelty and fear that they and their families lived through. I spent much of my time listening to the real truth of hardships that they experienced because of the color of their skin. And it still, to this day, breaks my heart. But one day, Purvis, in his quiet and gracious manner, asked me, why are you the same no matter who you're with? My answer, we all bleed the same. Attention to myself but to share how people from two different races can find healing and hope in listening. But I have much to learn yet about racial issues. I don't have all the answers. And how to correct the injustices in our society. You might be one who's been treated unjustly or disrespected, hurt by words spoken in ignorance. 
You may be the one yearning for acceptance and grace. I know that in his prevenient grace, God is running toward you with open arms, waiting for you to respond. It's that, sim it's that simple and it's that hard because years of pain, injustice, and sin run deep. But God's grace is deeper and wider and higher than all of these. I pray that Christians in this nation feel the urgency to share his message of love and pass on the grace that is for everyone. I also pray that those who hear it will respond to God's offer and find healing for their brokenness. That all people will find that God doesn't walk away when we make bad choices. He won't abandon you if you think you are beyond saving. No one is a lost cause in God's kingdom. The Lord doesn't walk away. He is the God who stays. Amen.